welcome to Cinemakers. This is episode 37, Insomnia, directed by Christopher Nolan. I'm Chris Mattiello. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Jimmy Lewandowski. And this, I realize, is Christopher Nolan's last, or final, however you want to say it, rated R film. Everything after here is PG-13, designed for consumption by the masses. Because as soon as we saw, like, the dead body, like, full frontal, dead body nudity, I was just like, huh, I bet this is rated R. And it is. And everything after here is PG-13, but this is the last unrestrained Christopher Nolan that we have. Yeah, he still feels a little restrained. It didn't feel like a hard R movie to me. I wish he took a little more advantage of that, but still cool. That's cool. I didn't know that. This is last noir movie, kind of, so I guess that makes some sense. This is kind of a blend of what he was doing with, like, the genre guy he's going to become. So this is definitely a transition point in a lot of ways. The big takeaway I got from this was I understand why this is kind of his forgotten film, but I, I don't dislike it. It's just, it's a real asterisk in his filmography. No, yeah, I think it's a good but forgettable version of a type of movie that I've seen a bunch of times, but there's nothing, like, bad about it. It's just fine. It's good. Like, I, I think I gave it, like, three and a half on Letterboxd. Like, I like it. It's just, compared to what's about to come, where he's going to, like, blow our minds in one way or another, or what just came in terms of momentum. This is just like a noticeable sort of not step forward. Like I don't want to say step back, but not step forward. I'll tell you something interesting, though, is that this is a remake of a 1997 Norwegian film. And I saw the original film. And I have to say, this is a good remake. Like, for whatever else is going on here, like, he took the core elements of that original story, and, like, Pacino is playing pretty much an entirely different character. So it's just, like, the situation, and he Americanized the setting and just used um, the environment around him differently. So ultimately, I say it's successful as a remake, if nothing else. It's got a hell of a cast. I mean, Nolan, he has his eye for a shot. He can pull great performances, and not that he needs to pull, anything out of these actors um, but he, he gets great performances and two question mark of the Keanu Club episodes I was on with you were police procedurals The Watcher and I feel like I was on one more but I don't like procedurals and like this is a really good version of one compared to those movies this is fucking Chinatown yeah, I think two things that really make this pop for me is the idea that, well, okay, so it's like, again, he's sort of taking like a conventional like detective story, but it's a very interesting setting. You know, we're in the land of the midnight sun. So uh, that is a very interesting element in play here. And then I love what Pacino's doing in this. I love his performance. I just think it's really wild. It's almost, I almost got like cage moments, believe it or not, Joey, like something like he's really reaching and trying to find something that he's never done before in this performance and I was just really drawn to it. I can see that. Chris, I just looked at I don't think you were on two procedurals unless you're considering Point Break a police no. procedural because the other episodes you were on were Dracula, which uh, just came out on Winona Forever, so go check that version of that out. You were on Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, which is a thumb procedural, I guess. <laughs> yeah. The Watcher, The Lake House, which is a mailbox procedural, and then Knock Knock, which is the uh, Lolita procedural. Pizza procedural. All right, I was thinking of The Gift, which I was, I guess I was not on. Yeah. I remember uh, enjoying the fat Keanu era, but I guess, okay, so, but yeah, I mean, I don't like procedurals. Even the ones that are quote-unquote good, girl with the dragon tattoo, stuff like that, I tend to not really enjoy them. And I think that's why, and we'll get to it, I'm sure, but I think that's why this movie left me a little bit cold, because I think it goes out of its way to not be a procedural until about the last 10 minutes when it ends exactly how you think it's going to. Yep, because I think, you know, for lack of a better term, there's no prestige here, right? Like, we're gonna see, like, there's no, like, third act, like, the third 
paradox twist is almost like you just said, hey, this is the movie that you thought it was all along, as opposed to the movie that you thought it might not be. And he's not pulling the rug out from under you. At the end, it's sort of in the middle. But at the same time, I'm glad you brought up Dragon Tattoo, because just like I was talking about last week with Memento, once again here, I'm getting like flashbacks or sort of visions of David Fincher. Like, this feels like the sort of more procedural parts of Seven, like where he goes to Robin Williams' apartment and then chases him across town or whatever. Like, that felt like Seven to me. And, you know, it just feels like things that I've seen before, like a good version of that, but not good enough to be like, oh, this is like a great movie that I want to watch over and over and over again. Yeah, stuff that I really enjoyed in this was like the cat and mouse stuff between him and Robin Williams. Like, I really like the interplay between these two guys and as actors and as characters and their performance. And it, that, to me, was a cool dynamic. I'm not sure if they played it correctly the whole way or it could have been done better, but I thought that was really interesting to me. I was like, okay, like, he's being manipulated by the bad guy that he's trying to catch. And so, like, to me, that was a just, like, a cool story element that I was able to enjoy, too. I like that, but I really think it was interesting. I'm not not sure if maybe it was a bit of stunt casting at the time, but Robin Williams had gone back to doing like a stretch of pretty serious roles around this time, like One Hour Photo and this movie and a few others. And I just think that was, it's a great idea for casting because when he shows up, it's kind of a surprise. He's like kind of the last type of person you might expect playing that role. Also, uh, Death to Smoochie was this year as well, which is overhated. Very much an overhated movie. And I was getting, uh, I, I like the Fincher stuff. I was getting Michael Mann vibes throughout, actually. So, yeah, it just, it does feel like a not Nolan movie. Yeah, between that and between it not having his usual kind of cerebral headiness, I guess you can call it. I, I wouldn't go that far with it, maybe. But, you know, the, the twistiness and, and that kind of stuff. It's definitely the, the black sheep of his filmography. But, I mean, I thought it was going to be bad. And, and looking into it, I was like, why why don't people remember this as fondly outside of that? Was it a critical failure? Was it a commercial failure? And the answer to both of those is absolutely not. Mm -hmm. This is the only movie that he directed that he does not have a writing credit on, so he wrote a version of this screenplay, but I think the, the writing credit goes to the guy who wrote the original, or there's some there's something there. What's also interesting to me, and Mike, you can maybe offer some deeper insight here into the differences. The script adaptation was written by Hilary Seitz. That's why he has a writing credit, because it was adapted by somebody else. There's the original credit, um, and the original script had Pacino's character arriving in Alaska from Oregon, and Pacino's executive assistant at the time, this guy named Tim Judge, suggested it be changed to L.A. and that Pacino's character should have planted evidence to get a conviction, which put an innocent man in prison, which is, like, where this whole thing winds up eventually. And then after that, like, the L.A. internal affairs was going to be suspicious and pursue him to bring him back for questioning. And then, you know, Pacino's assistant also suggested Robin Williams also be guilty of the crime that Pacino planted the evidence on in L.A., and that's what drew him to Alaska is the similarities between the two cases, and Christopher Nolan finally liked all this stuff so much that he wrote it into the final director's version of the script. So I think that's also why it sort of feels like maybe a good remake, or it feels like a different movie, or maybe even doesn't feel like Christopher Nolan, because he didn't write the script, and then like these like sort of major plot points were suggested by somebody else, and he's just like, oh yeah, like that kind of works, I can, I can sort of deal with that. Yeah, and that's entirely new, too. This is a half hour longer than the original 
version and what this does is pad everything out basically so like all that internal affairs stuff with Pacino and his partner the original guy does shoot his partner by accident but he's not trying they're not involved he is he does have sort of a dubious past but he's not involved in like planning evidence it doesn't get that deep that isn't in it like the guy gets away at the end basically the Pacino character lives and gets away at the end and does a lot more terrible things along the way so like the scene with the dog in this movie where Pacino is trying to replace the bullet and he shoots a dead dog in the original one the guy shoots like a living dog so uh, and that's kind of early on and that's just like one of the terrible things that this guy does but this movie again like whenever I was expecting it to uh, zig it zagged you know what I'm saying like it changed these core scenes in very interesting and different ways I left kind of thinking that I wish this movie had more of a, a moral ambiguity in what it was trying to say by the end and I think that makes sense with what you were saying if a lot of those additions to the character were added over the course of the screenwriting or maybe closer to the final draft and they didn't have as much time to kind of fine tune it and I imagine that I imagine that the uh because it gave it gave Pacino more to do so I imagine that that assistant's name was like Hal Pacino and uh it's like this is this is uh Al Pacino's assistant Chris give him some more to act with buddy <laughs> He's got an idea, too. He wants to run by you. That was really good. So the other thing that I read was that uh, Pacino, there was another version that they filmed that Pacino lived at the end that I think Hilary Swank's character like helped him get away or some or somebody helped him get away. I don't know if it was him or, some, or if it was her or somebody else, but it just feels like there were a lot of sort of not necessarily last minute twists and turns, but whether to give Pacino more to do. Because, I mean, he's doing, he's got a lot to do in this movie. Yeah, it's weird, too, because the original, again, it's just like it's mostly the detective played by... Stellan Skarsgård, who looks exactly, not exactly, but who looks just like Christopher Nolan in that movie. <laughs> like, they are uh, doppelgangers. So, um, I don't know, I wonder if he watched the movie and had, like, a connection to it because of that. But, um, one, one thing that I really liked about this version is the Hilary Swank character. She is basically not in the other version and I think it was a pretty smart move to add someone like that in here. It's almost like the audience surrogate and that was pretty clever because you know, as an audience member going to a detective movie, you kind of feel like an amateur detective from time to time. It's like, okay, I know this movie. I can kind of like figure it out before it reveals itself and I almost feel like she's that type of person where she's trying to first aid the case and then sort of solve it behind his back or like she has the idea that he's not exactly doing this by the book or anything and then she ends up being correct but then she also has like a moral quandary toward the end which I also enjoyed too so that was a good addition um, adding that character in there yeah, I thought early on, I was like, oh, she's the Ellen Page of this movie. Because, like, in Inception, Ellen Page is like, wait, what's going on? What's happening? Because she's the one sort of explaining everything. And exactly like you said, like, the audience surrogate. But I think that eases back. Like, he dials that back a little bit and makes her more of a character as opposed to just, like, a, hey, like, what's going on? Like, who is this? Like, why am I, like, who, like, let me introduce you to these people. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like it starts really kind of heavy-handed there, but then works better as the movie goes on. I think she also gains the most from Nolan's direction, um, um, you know, among this cast of incredible actors. We talked about in Memento how he gets a lot out of actors' little subtle facial expressions, and she gets to do that throughout this entire movie, as she's kind of on the trail of the person on the trail. And, she, you know, every time Pacino gets to react, and he's reacting or overreacting, as he's, he does, and Swank is kind of the one who is more using, uh, she's acting with her face, kind of reacting to his reactions, and um, 
um, it's great. I wish she did more. I wish she wasn't damseled quite so much at the end, even though, you know, she gets her moments and stuff like that. But yeah, she's she is not the character that I thought she was going to be until she was the character I thought she was going to be. Really picked up on that too this time with uh, especially Pacino's facial acting in this movie is just incredible. Like he originally just has like those sleepy eyes most of the time. Yeah. Like he just looks like he's walking around and needs coffee 24-7. And to really like lean into that where there's moments where he's like they're out having drinks or something and he's like literally like struggling to stay awake but also can't fall asleep. Like there's just some really good stuff going on. He's full-on mouth breathing by the end of this movie it's incredible i can't believe though he doesn't have a driver by the you know he's like up for five days and he's still driving around like drinking beers and stuff like it's incredible how sort of functional he is to the degree that he is out there walking around and stuff i i mean i would just collapse from exhaustion after day three i think this one film critic that i follow on letterboxd said christopher nolan's first three movies are all about walking ghosts and he said memento is obviously the best of the three of those but like they're all like the first three movies the ones we talked about so far following a memento and this it's kind of like they're in one way or another sort of like a dead person walking through a movie trying to make sense of the world around them like al pacino is the farthest from like vibrant and living as possible here. You know, in the last movie, Guy Pierce had no short-term memory. And in the first one, in following, the guy was sort of lost in charge, sort of just trying to find his way in this world. And I think it's interesting to look at these three things as sort of, a, you know, the three main characters as sort of like a man outside of time and space, maybe, and see three very different movies with them, but a similar character at the core of each. Yeah, and the, um, the editing really backs that up as well with those kind of, if you've ever seen this movie, you'll get this reference, those kind of brave little toaster moments where every like mechanical object is just like rebelling against him as as just the, the complete lack of the, the the sleep deprivation is is taking over him there's the scene in the office and the scene where he's driving where he's just he's just fixated on these these um objects that have you know constant motion and it's it, it does induce anxiety in the viewer and yeah it's visual storytelling all throughout this movie i hate to use the cliche that the setting becomes a character but when you have those great chases through the fog and the rocks and the maybe my favorite scene in the movie with the log chase and the aftermath of that. Yeah, there's just so much visual storytelling through this. And Nolan, I think, will come to be known as a master of that. And this is him stretching his legs in something that is not his own creation and still doing a great job with visual storytelling. There's actually a reason I might want to go back and rewatch this. Something I was thinking of before we recorded, but now that you say that, like the way that he uses techniques to express character, you know, and not just use it as like a cool technique or something, but actually apply it to what's actually going on in someone's head or something. Like, I, I don't know, I didn't catch this, but I wonder if like the editing sort of slows down throughout the movie, you know, because he's so alert at the beginning and he's so asleep or he's just like, you know, in that state, a fugue state at the end. Like, I think it might, I, I wonder if there's something technically going on there where he's sort of lulling the audience in a way or two, you know, to get us to feel more like Pacino at times. Because I know there is times one or two times where he's in his hotel room and I'm about to sort of drift off but then he's he yanks like the dresser across the floor and it wakes me back up and I'm alert again and I'm in in the movie again so I, I would go back and look at that and see if it's happening 
I definitely felt a couple of times they outright remind you of what time of the day it is. There's the very first one, which is played for laughs, where he's like, well, let's go to the school. And then like, it's 10 p.m. But then, like, I think he meets Robin Williams one time, and it's like, oh, it's midnight, and it's just, it just looks like, you know, the afternoon. There, there are all these times when they remind you that there is no such thing as day and night here to kind of fuck with your sense of time. And when he says he'd been up for six days at a certain point, since you don't see him sleep, since there is no establishing shots that indicate the passage of time, you do really get lost in, like, how much time is passing? How long has he been here? You don't know. You feel just as lost as he does. Some movies do this just because they're bad, where you don't know how much time has passed. I think I've talked about that with you guys before. I don't remember what movie, but there are movies where it's like, how long does this take place over? And that's a good thing in this movie, because you do lose all sense of time. And this movie's, what, probably like six or seven days? Because they say toward the end that he's been up for X number of days or whatever. Like, that's the only way that... I think that's the only, like, real metric that we have. Because you're right, like, other than that, it's like a walking nightmare. Like, there's the sun never sets. You know, and actually, like, this is sort of related to the episode we just recorded last night for Watch the Throne, where at the beginning of The Road, Viggo Mortensen's like, I think it's October. Like, they're also existing sort of beyond time. Like, here, it's still civilization. It's still a world in which clocks exist and calendars exist and people do their day-to-day business. But it's the same kind of like how do you mark time when everything feels the same and it does it is sort of in a weird way there is a surrealness to it all even though it's a completely natural thing that's going on like as humans it just feels like there should be a nighttime every day uh, so I just got that extra like the movie is definitely messing with your senses and whether you know how or not like it doesn't really matter I guess because the general effect is coming across and that that's just great because like I just love that you know he's a master of these techniques already I can understand if the studio was just like, all right, sure, this may not have performed like we were expecting, but we like it and we see your talent. Like, what do you want to do? What are you feeling? And down the line, they will give him a blank check. So yeah, it's just really cool to see how, in a way, it seems like he's he's like, yeah, I could play ball. Like, I could do this sort of studio detective story. It's it's my wheelhouse. I can apply a lot of what I've done before to this without being too flashy, but still make it my own. They make a joke about halfway through the movie where they're like, it's better than winter where like the sun doesn't come up and I kind of wish that there was like a you know Insomnia 2 where it's just there's no sun uh, you can see the excellent Josh Hartnett movie 30 Days of Night oh <laughs> I forgot that existed you are yeah we're good without an Insomnia 2 yeah I did really like the I guess it's a close kind of thing to an establishing shot where he's got that like 28 days later setup where he's looking for the dog to the dog body to shoot where um, he's just walking through what really does look like a town post-apocalypse that's just completely empty in what is technically broad night light, I guess? Like, it, it must be three or four in the morning, <laughs> but he, it's just, it looks like he's out there at, at dusk and he's, there's, it's just a dead town. It's really crazy, like you say that, Chris, because I, in the beginning of the movie, right off the bat, they're flying up over the mountains, and I'm like, those look like the mountains of madness. Like, this <laughs> feels like a Lovecraft movie or something. And then I, that started happening again, like when he's wandering the desolate town during mm-hmm. daylight at like three in the morning it's like it's so eerie i'm like this is like one of those towns like straight out of one of those lovecraft stories or something or out of like the shining right like with the the woods of the sloping mountain going up on the drive and then you know wandering the hallways of the hotel where it's all lit up all at all hours of the night like it's just being isolated in a town like there's people around but he is very much alone in this movie i know the answer to this is yes because i read your letterboxd but I'll ask it as a question anyway so that the listener can play along. Did you get massive Twin Peaks vibes from this as well? Yes. So there's at least two things that happened. 
when Al Pacino takes that girl, the dead girl's boyfriend's guma, basically, brings her to the dump, and he's like, here's where she found, he even says, I think, literally, wrapped in plastic, or wrapped in garbage bags or something. I'm just like, that's Laura Palmer. Like, it's not Laura Palmer, but it's Laura Palmer. And then I think the next scene is when Pacino is chasing Robin Williams across those logs. I was like, I know it's not exactly the Pacific Northwest, but it's the Pacific Northwest, and it's, you know, a murder of a dead young girl, and that's a, that's a creepy affair with an older man, and absolutely, this is, for lack of a better phrase, like, this is Laura Palmer. You know, Pacino is, I guess, Dale Cooper with like a, a more a darker backstory, but absolutely. Oh, it's Mr. C. <laughs> yeah, I actually, uh, from the cops, I got a bit of a vibe, especially after having seen The Return. Uh, the one cop with the mustache kind of reminded me of Bobby from The Return a little bit, just sort of like knew his shit, but wasn't totally assertive and everything. But yeah, just the banter going on between them. The, the boyfriend who's accused of the crime rides a motorcycle and is the bad boy and is sleeping with the friend. I feel like the hotel itself is like fucking built straight out of that. Like it, it really, really induces those vibes early on. Like if more Tierney came over and was like, they found a fish in the percolator, I would not have stopped and hesitated. <laughs> it really feels like they're pulling those vibes out, which I mean, hey, that's a great, another great visual reference. You know what, though? Like, I wish he leaned into that a bit more because there is going to be times where he hallucinates his dead partner in the hotel room chair, you know, or he's having these sort of flashbacks to when he's planting the false evidence and everything. And I almost wish we had a little more loss of reality interpreted through the use of film. And I wish he got a, a tad weirder with it, but I could understand the restraint because ultimately I feel like it's not just about him losing his mind or whatever. It's not... Even though it's called insomnia, that isn't the only thing going on. He chews gum all the time because it's back in style. Like, it's all coming together now. In terms of the Twin Peaks stuff and in terms of, like, the Fincher stuff, and, like, I don't know if you guys are getting the Fincher vibes that I'm getting, but, like, it feels so weird to me. Maybe it's not. And this is also something I wrote in my Letterboxd review, so I know that Chris also saw this. I wonder if, as we go through these and watch them all, like, in a row, is Christopher Nolan, like, I, I think of him as this, like, revolutionary filmmaker that sort of sets the precedents and like not like James Cameron invents technology but like uses technology in these like crazy ways and like does these like crazy visual things and like makes things his own but you know through a few movies it feels like he's doing good versions of what I've seen elsewhere and I wonder if we're gonna get more of that like I'm really really like that more than anything else of what we're doing so far I'm interested in that like are we gonna get more of that as we go on or is it gonna be now that he's doing Batman it's his own thing and like the prestige is his own thing Interstellar is his own like I, I don't know where it's gonna go but I sort of want to see if like these like Fincher vibes or these David Lynch vibes or whatever continue or if it's just these early ones before he like really truly has his own tone and sort of palette and vision and artistry down. I think to a degree though you're onto something because like you have seen Batman before you know what I mean and he's just gonna kind of come along and do Batman his way when the prestige came out there was another movie that year like the illusionist you know so it was almost like dueling magic movies he doesn't another Batman the interstellar is somewhat of like a homage to 2001 to a degree I mean uh, he gets very Kubrick with his style like in Dunkirk and stuff um, but I do feel like he might be just a genre filmmaker to a degree but he's putting 
his stamp on it and I feel like his stamp is strong and unique and unlike other people and so whether underneath the surface like we sort of said over the last two episodes or so or at least over the following and stuff you know it's not necessarily these amazing plots and stories per se but it's the way he's presenting them too and I feel like going along that's sort of his trademark it's like okay it's the Christopher Nolan war movie or the Christopher Nolan space movie or Christopher Nolan's Batman and and I think that's totally fine like I think that's cool you know like I think filmmakers would die to be referenced that way. I think it's all the more better that his movies are, are really good movies, too. That he's not really he's not he's not really boastful and sort of out there saying, ah, oh, wait until you see my next movie. He just really lets his work speak for itself, and I feel like it speaks real well. I think every director has their thing, you know? Tarantino is kind of a style guy. Or... I thought you were going to say is a foot guy. Well, he's definitely a foot guy. Michael Bay is kind of like a hyperbolic kind of filmmaker, and then Nolan is just, I think, the most cinematic of what we have in regards to an auteur today because he understands that film is a visual medium, and he likes to create visuals. And I know that that seems like a really obvious thing in, in the most visual medium, but I think he gets that we're there to see a spectacle, and he gives us this little these little tastes of like CGI vaudeville in all of his films and and they just draw you in in that way like you're always going to see something unique in a Christopher Nolan movie even if you know the genre and yeah he is a genre filmmaker but even if you know that genre and and that's a genre film you're going to get something unique it's it's a feast for the senses really when you're going to see a Christopher Nolan movie and you have you really have to appreciate that even if you don't love his screenwriting which I I think that's maybe his biggest gap in a lot of ways is it might be there if you want to find negatives about Nolan but I think you have to appreciate what he does just for this fucking spectacle of it all because it's still entertainment at the end it's art but it's entertainment i also think and i think we were talking about this maybe on the first episode or maybe it was last week we were also saying that in addition to the cinematic and the artistry of christopher nolan he's also like the approachable philosophy sort of or the approachable headiness there's obviously weirder and deeper and you know more thought-provoking directors out there but in terms of the movies that you can go see and still be popcorn movies that he's going to bring the extra level to it so i think you know in describing him there's the sort of two-headed beast and if that's all that it is where it's just very good versions like it's his own take on the genre that he's working in it works because i like almost all of his movies yeah, I also love that he is really pushing the IMAX format, too. You know what I mean? Like, that down the line, that's going to be a huge thing. Like, he pretty much keeps that alive and going for a while. And now, what, people are shooting movies, entire movies in IMAX? Where before it was like, Christopher Nolan is, like, shooting one sequence in an IMAX camera, whatever. And it, it was like an event, right? But now it's, like, you know, becoming normal. So it's just great. You're saying he's got, like, respect for the medium. He knows that the use of... 70 millimeter and IMAX and stuff like that will open up his canvas and give him a wider canvas and give people the spectacle of it. It'll be better presentation to absorb the spectacle. It's just really cool that he's on that level. I feel like filmmakers just mostly don't really care entirely about how their films are projected and it's just nice that he's trying to make it somewhat of an event again. We're not going to get to this movie for two months or whatever, but like the fact that he was able to put an IMAX camera in the cockpit with Tom Hardy and Dunkirk, it's like, oh, like this is, he's raising the stakes again. So absolutely agree with you. While we're on this subject, can we talk about my favorite scene in this film, which... I think, you know, I, I kind of spent this whole movie looking, since I knew he didn't write it, I spent this whole movie looking for interesting direction, which maybe um, so far has been my big critique of Nolan throughout this podcast, is that he's been a pretty static director for the most part in regards to shots. And though the cinematography is always great, and Wally Pfister is back on this one, I fucking love 
how the entire movie, the color palette, had no blues in it whatsoever until Pacino goes under the water. And then it is like stark, bright blue. And it is such a shock to the senses that like, I don't think, you know, know, it's one of those cases, you know, maybe you don't recognize it, but your brain does. It feels so alien to everything else in this universe that has been set up where like the brightest color that's not a flesh tone is like the green on the side of the road in Alaska. And it's just, it feels so cold and so, again, like anxiety inducing. I do think that this movie lacked tension, even in a lot of the tense scenes, which, you know, the quote-unquote tense scenes, except for where he is in the water. And just that hard slam from muted colors to bright blue as he's trying to escape is such a stroke of, like, again, that visual, those visual cues that your brain is supposed to pick up on, like visual storytelling. I loved it. And it went for the perfect amount of time for it to not seem completely ridiculous, but still feel like Pacino was really in danger. Because I think a lot of the time you don't really feel like Robin Williams is putting Al Pacino in any danger. But yeah, this was the one time I really felt tension and that very simple trick of color was so integral to that and I loved it and I think it's the best direction thing that Nolan has done thus far visually. I didn't notice that and I'm sort of disappointed in myself that I didn't notice that but that's great. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I'm not sure I picked up on that either. I just remember when he fell in the water it was one of those moments where I was almost woken up again to a level like it was just one of those times where the movie shook me so I felt something but maybe I wasn't entirely sure what it was but I do love the use of lighting in this movie because it's constantly daylight. He does some interesting things when they get inside different places like I really like his hotel room. I remember the first time I watched this whenever that was, I I thought that wasn't really interesting. I don't know. I just felt like something was sort of too makeshift about the way that he covered up his blinds and everything and the window and stuff. But this time I was like, no, like that makes more sense to me and everything. And the time when Maura Tierney comes in and he's like, it's so damn bright in here. And she's like, it's dark in here and turns on the light and like the dynamic range just sort of goes to the 10th degree. And it's almost like a whiteout when she turns those lights on and then she turns them back off and you're like, oh man, what a relief. That was really interesting too. You know, I am not going to complain about the way this movie looks. Like it is really well shot and they have a really beautiful location to exploit too. Like it was really smart doing that whole logging chase scene and the idea of like his, um, that is uh, Robin Williams hideout like at the end is has like a dock on it and Pacino like goes under the dock and like up into the other shed and everything like it was really cool I, I feel like they really got the most out of their environment I do want to say just while we are because I, I don't have anything eloquent to add to that because I think you both did a very nice job of describing things very beautifully but my only defense of why I didn't notice or might not have noticed the stark blueness of that one scene is because running to that scene I don't know if either of you caught it but watching Al Pacino Pacino run from the back, it was very clearly a stunt double who could, like, actually <laughs> run on camera. And then from the front, you see, like, Al Pacino, like, doing this old man sort of, like, flailing his arms sort of thing. And I was like, oh, from the front, he looks, like, so sort of just, like, goofy. And from the back, it, like, looks like just, like, a, a normal dude running. And so my brain was like, oh, this is this is something wild that's happening here. And I think that's, like, what befuddled my brain to, like, take me out of the moment. What did you guys think of... All right, well, for, all right first off, let me rewind here. We brought up more Tierney. And I have, I have a question. I, I wish she was used more. I think she's great in general, and she was kind of wasted here. Is she the hotel manager? And also the restaurant person, right? She also ran the restaurant? Yes. I did love her line about everyone here was either born here or, like, escaped to here. Is running from something. I wish she had a little bit more to do, though I don't know what it would have been. Also, just a weird, like, editing thing that I, I thought was weird. 
Do they fuck the characters? Is that what's implied there? Do they? Because, like, they're talking, and then he's in the bathroom, and just, like, she's just in his bed, fully clothed, and he's clothed, but, like, he's in the bathroom, and there's the implication that time has passed, but, like, not that much time. Again, a weird thing about, like, the time distortion in this movie. It's just, like, why is she asleep in his bed? I don't get it. What happens? Maybe it was a deleted scene. There's additional scenes on the Blu-ray. I'll tell you this, in the original version, that lady, that character, that woman is is hardly in the movie. So like they actually expanded her character, but there is a moment when Stellan Skarsgård and her kiss, they start kissing and he, it gets like too rough for her and he sort of almost rapes her almost. It's really bizarre. What? Yeah, and uh, and she like stops it immediately, but he's like going for it. So maybe they were trying to do a twist on that relationship where she actually they actually get along in this version and it just didn't play but i was totally expecting them to get together absolutely i had just knowing they were sort of taking left turns with the original material like knowing that the change with the dog and, and the change where he plays chicken with the truck with the girl from high school in the original one he's actually he actually finger bangs her in the what? car Christ. on the way to the dump i mean she's she's alluding to that like she's like hiking up her skirt and like grabbing his arms like it's there for him but then i like that he sees that and could do something, but it's just like, no, I'm going to scare the shit out of this, like, idiot little girl and get the answers I need. Like, I like that he's not a scumbag. He's like, and also, if he's able to bang more tyranny, like, five days or six days into no sleep, like, good on him. If he has the energy for that, like, go for it. Well, I mean, it makes sense in the other one, because you don't cast Stellan Skarsgård if you don't want him to be a secret scumbag in some way. Like, that is his wheelhouse. I did not think that I was going to hate him by the end of the movie, and he gets away with it, too. So, he's, you know, it's like he's the ultimate despicable character in that movie. So I do like that Pacino is a completely different character making different choices with the same sort of circumstances. You know, that that was interesting to watch. Also, I just want to mention um, the friend slash secret girlfriend who you mentioned is Catherine Isabel, which if you've watched a horror movie in the early 2000s, you definitely recognize her, specifically from Ginger Snaps, which is a great movie. Just ignore all the sequels. That's where you probably know her from. Was she in the last Friday the 13th movie by any chance or Freddy vs. Jason? She was in Freddy vs. Jason, yes. Okay, I knew I knew her from one of those two movies. Yep. Yep, she's the one who passes out in the cornfield and uh, goes to Freddy Land. Yeah. Yeah, she's, she's great, and she she plays exactly the kind of role that, you know, she's known to play. A lot of great character actors in this movie who, who just show up and are very good at their jobs. You know, one thing that I like about this that is a continuation sort of of the first two movies is that it feels like, I don't know if we ever really see what he's using, but it seems like Al Pacino is using a credit card once again to pick locks on doors, which we saw in both Following and Memento, so I guess it's just like Nolan's thing, just keep picking door locks with credit cards, so cool little Nolan action. One thing that I read was that Robin Williams was like so depressed by shooting up in Alaska with the light was that he had a drinking relapse while shooting oh, no. this film. Like he was sober and then had to start drinking again because it was just so, I don't know if it was, I think it was the isolation and the, the light or whatever, but just he kind of just couldn't handle it, which is kind of a bummer for, I mean, obviously we know they had problems with addiction because that led to his death, but I didn't really consider that like these actors have to shoot in the same mm-hmm. conditions like how do you handle that like is Pacino how much is he really acting and how much is he just lack of sleep Jonathan Demi considered directing this movie which oh, I could kind of see that it's kind of a little bit of that Silence of the Lambs flavor what else has he done that I would have seen? I'm very lacking. I guess only the Manchurian Candidate remake that I have not seen, but Philadelphia and Rachel getting married and... Oh, those are good, yeah. 
Serena Cambodia, so in a little uh, Soderbergh oh. action, sort of, kind of there. Didn't he do a pretty famous concert movie? Uh, yeah, he did the Talking Heads movie. Stop Making Sense, yeah. Yeah, he did Stop Making Sense. You have to have seen that. Me, no. Oh, gotta see Stop Making Sense. He also did a Justin Timberlake documentary or film or concert which is a now and again connection to to your other podcast chris very true very very true i didn't take a lot of notes like i feel like for a lot of these movies and i think i said it on one of the other episodes like i don't know that i'm gonna have a lot of notes for them but i'll be able to talk about them this is just it feels simpler than his other movies which is i think part of the disappointment but like i feel like if a lot of directors made this movie they would be happy with like how well it was made it just feels like for him either coming off memento or retroactively knowing what he's going to do next it just feels a little underwhelming i feel like maybe and I, you know i don't know but i feel like maybe part of that might be intentional not that he wanted to underwhelm or anything but maybe that he just sort of pulled back because memento really goes all out with his trickery uh, and following does a lot of tricks and stuff and so maybe he just wanted to see can i tell the story in a more basic manner or am i even able to tell a linear story you know how will that turn out yep. so part part of this just sort of feels like he's testing the waters in other ways and like can i just do a commercial film you know can i play by the rules like is that the type of filmmaker i can be and i think believe it or not with batman with the next movie i think he actually starts to strike sort of a balance or find a way to balance non-linear and sort of more sort of stylistic storytelling with just conventional storytelling and conventional filmmaking stuff so i think we start to see more of a merge of his uh sensibilities coming up I gotta say, I still can't fucking believe they gave this guy the keys to Batman. Was the property that <laughs> broken from Batman and Robin? Like, nothing is bad. It's just like, I guess, just like seeing how superhero movies work now and it being such a machine. It's just like crazy they threw him Batman to me. I can't wait to read about how it came to be. Like, that's one of the things I'm most looking forward to. Part of it makes sense to me. Part of it does. Just the idea that Batman was in a recession, I guess, like the franchise. Warner Brothers, like right now, they don't know what the hell to do with Batman. Nolan really must have had just a grasp of the character. And I could see it because this is a detective story. So, and he's working with Pacino, you know what I'm saying? And Robin Williams, like he's no, these guys aren't like any slouch or anything. So he shows that he can direct on that type of level or at least work with those types of actors. So he's got like a list potential behind him i think it was just what do you want to do batman sure like nothing else going on with it can't make it worse but i am interested to hear what kind of uh, trivia is dug up because i've heard all kinds of shit from darren aronofsky to like terry gilliam and whatever is going on behind those scenes but uh, yeah that's going to be a fun episode next week and also another reason that they might have given it to him is because this movie he shot for forty six million and then worldwide it made one thirteen. So I mean it made sixty seven domestic, another forty six worldwide. So he made his money back for sure. So I think it's just a combination of like, hey, we wanna try this thing, you've done this well. I mean, we just you know, we we hired you or whatever, like a, a studio picture deal or whatever, and you did us right here, so you want Batman? Mm. And then it worked out. Yeah. It almost sounds like we're gonna bring and this is before he used this as a title for a movie but I it's like we're gonna bring prestige to Batman we're gonna get this indie dark crime filmmaker and give him Batman which now is known as almost like a joke or a cartoon or you know there's nothing really the last Batman movie may as well have been made in the 60s so yeah it's kind of funny it's like let's see what he can do holy shit he knocked it out of the park do you think Robin Williams and him ever had a conversation he was like oh you're a 
You're gunning for gunning for Batman, huh? Well, if you ever need a Riddler, you know, you, you let me know. Because that was like his dream role. His dream role was to play the Riddler. Was it really? Yeah, he would have been good when we get there as that banker guy in The Dark Knight. And then he could have came back in the next one. He could have been a good Nolan Riddler. Um, can we talk about Robin Williams, RAPD, for a little bit, actually? I was a little underwhelmed by him. I don't think that was his fault, though. He didn't get to go as crazy as, say, like, a Death of Smoochie or One Hour Photo. The one or two moments of, like, real acting he got to do, like the, the phone call sort of unintentional confession, I guess maybe he was directed to play it like a normal psychopath who doesn't realize he's a psychopath, which is good. It made it feel a little bit more realistic, again, until the end, when it, he just goes off the rails. The last ten minutes of this movie, I think, are really do feel like an albatross on it. But like, I think he's just kind of fine. Maybe it's more stunt casting, like you said, Mike, than in a one-hour photo kind of thing where he gets to do that the whole time. I just I felt like this could have been anybody. Yeah, I agree. I'm also trying to think, like, the other, the other note that I have in my notes, not about Robin Williams, but that the Pacino role was considered or a first choice was Harrison Ford. And I'm also now trying to think of, like, how Harrison Ford would have gone up against Robin Williams, if that would have lent anything more to Robin Williams' performance, or if that's just internal to what he was doing, it didn't matter who he was acting across from. But he's not, like, a cool killer. He's just, like, a creepy guy, yeah. kind of. But not, like, creepy in, like, a unique way. No, I think that's intended. I think he is just supposed to be kind of like what Pacino says, like just a sad, pathetic dude that he's seen a million of. I just, I did feel like it was weird that like it sets up at the beginning. Pacino even says like, he's going to do this again. And he just is really a guy who did this one thing and then is just fucking with Pacino. But it's like, he's just a guy. Yeah, there were two things I was thinking about while watching this performance. The first is I was wondering if they were just like how reserved and toned down can Robin Williams get? And I just think like that was the goal was just don't react. Just like try and play it as sort of flat as possible. And maybe that was supposed to be some sort of insight into the character's mindset. Just the idea that he never panicked or that after the moment, you know, he was like super calm ever since. And he never really overreacts when he's playing Pacino. You know, he's actually always one step ahead of him. I mean, it's not really until the end where the movie gets super conventional that he has to sort of start reacting and shooting and stuff. But one thing I, I was wishing they went a little more into was this sort of idea that we have a, a writer, which is a writer again here from the following. He was a writer, but we have this writer who started living out one of his own crime novels. Like he is now a character in what he does because he's, he writes like crime novels and stuff, I think they said yeah. in, the, in the movie. So the idea that he thinks that he can, you know, outsmart this detective because he's been writing about this kind of stuff forever. I really wish they sort of leaned into that a lot more too. But yeah, I think a problem is ultimately it's not really about Robin Williams' character. So I never really get a good grasp on him. Like we're told a lot of different things about him, but ultimately I'm not really, I don't know where to land when it comes to him. Just that he's a nut, flat out crazy. And like, that's it. I guess it works in, again, the scene I mentioned where he's just like, oh, I swear it was an accident. And then he's just, he's so casual about actually kind of really not talking about how it was an accident and really how it was straight up a murder. And the delusion of this character does shine through there really well. I just feel like there's missed opportunities like the scene on the ferry. I feel like it should have been more intense or there should have been more tension. And it just kind of felt like two dudes talking. And I don't know if that's direction. Again, I don't think Robin Williams is bad in this movie. I just 
just don't think I ever felt... Like, when he's beating up Al Pacino, I know Al Pacino's on six days of not sleeping, but the end of the movie, again, really does fall apart to me. It's just comical. Oh, there's a lot of old man fighting in this movie. Yeah, it's just comical that Robin Williams ever gets the best of him, and Robin Williams is shooting a shotgun at a certain point, and just like, that's not this guy who we've been following the whole time. The scene on the ferry, I agree with you, they're sort of underwhelming. What I liked about it, and it's not about the acting or the directing, it's about the characters, is that it's a nice twist in a movie like this that the criminal is the one who records the conversation. Like, I like that element of it. But the actual, like, what you see on screen, it's just like, oh, okay. Like, he's confessing. To think about in three movies, we're going to have, like, that... Batman Joker interrogation scene and this is like sort of like in a way kind of that or like a couple scenes later like when they actually bring him in to the police station and like Al Pacino sort of like it feels like Al Pacino's not great against Robin Williams either like when he sort of like turns and like gets angry or whatever it just sort of feels like oh okay like that's happening now there's no connection I don't think between the two of them and I don't know if it's their fault I don't know if it's Christopher Nolan's fault I don't know if it's like the script I don't know what it is but it just feels like there's no shared experience between them. I can see that too because their relationship's very one-sided as well. Like Robin Williams is like, "Ooh, we're, you know, we're destined to be together." Like he's almost like, "I'm your Joker." But Al Pacino's like, "I'm not Batman. You're not my Joker. Like I don't care about you. I'm not obsessed in that way about you. I'm just trying to close this case." And Robin Williams is like, "We're connected. We're connected. We're connected." I didn't really get that either. I didn't buy all that. But what I do like, though, is just the way they look next to each other. For some reason, that did a lot for me. Just I'm like, I can't believe like Al Pacino and Robin Williams are in a very serious drama together right now. Like This is kind of crazy to witness. So maybe I was just my awe was uh, getting the best of me from time to time. Uh, they just like looked interesting standing next to each other in a shot. Yeah, and maybe maybe some of that disappointing character just kind of, to me, comes from the muddled morality that I think this movie has. And, and even down, right down to that, that last shot, where he's like, no, no, don't throw the incriminating evidence away. Don't do what I did. But, like, his whole thing throughout the movie, his morality was not to cover his own ass. His morality was to keep the people that he knew was guilty in jail by any means necessary. So to do that at the end, to me, again, like, this movie needed a better sense of morality, which I think, or lack of morality, which would have, I think, maybe given Robin Williams more, or at least a more focused idea of what to do with his character. Again, not on Nolan, really, but I think that is a, a, one of the more noticeable failings of the movie, is that it doesn't really know what it's saying at any point. Yeah, I think you're right, because once we find out the evidence that he falsifies, I'm kind of convinced. I'm like, okay, he's not, a, you know, like, yes, you can't go around falsifying evidence, but ultimately, like, he's not, a, he didn't do it for nefarious purposes. You're right, like, they, he tried to keep a child killer right in jail like this guy was gonna walk free so like he did something wrong but like his heart was in the right place you know what i mean it's not like he did something for personal gain like it's not like he ripped somebody off for his own good or anything like that like he literally was trying to do right by this dead kid and stuff so when he's redeemed at the or when the movie is kind of saying here's his redemption i'm like i don't really need it like i don't you know i'm not i'm not I'm like i want to see him catch the killer and sort of get on with it and go back and you know try and live a semblance of a life or something. Yeah, I certainly hope after she died, or after he died, she tossed that fucking bullet away, because otherwise the morality is all fit, like a bunch of child killers are going to walk. Yeah, the movie just doesn't do a good job of knowing what its moral center is, and that's at least something that the Batman movies, well, most of the Batman movies will get right. 
At least that's like sort of one of the discussions that he's having across yes. the course of the Batman movies. Right. Yeah. Our Batman episode is going to be like five fucking hours long. Two-parters. It might be. And with that said, should we wrap up shop here? Because I don't have anything else to say about this. Again, I, I said it a couple times. Like, it's not bad. It's just a little lacking from what I was hoping for. But also, in retrospect, I liked it more than I remember liking it. So that's good, I guess. But I also don't remember liking it very much at all. So Yeah, I just agreed across the board. I feel the exact same way. I certainly didn't feel like I wasted an hour and 58 minutes watching it. And I always like to see Hilary Swank show up and stuff. Even in movies that I don't think are very good, like Million Dollar Baby, I really do enjoy her anytime she shows up. Next Karate Kid. <laughs> and do you agree this is better than following? Not like incredibly, like not way, way better, but definitely better and more watchable than following? Yes. The ranking, I was going to do the ranking on Letterboxd as well, but I realized it would just be, it's hard to rank something when everything is good. Like, yeah, like following or this is going to be at the end, but that doesn't really mean either of them are necessarily bad. If we've hit the lowest of the lows that we're going to get, yeah, so I mean, fuck it. This is great. I, I'm certainly going to have no problem watching any more movies. Like, hooray, we, we did it. You picked a good director. Go Cinemakers. Same sentiment. Agree across the board right there. No need to repeat that. So the only thing, the only other thing on my notes that I wanted to mention, which is just like a little trivial thing, is there's a character in the movie we never see, but it's a, it's actually the guy he's trying to keep in prison by falsifying evidence. His name is Dobbs. And that's sort of like a cross between Dodd from the last movie and Cobb from the first movie. And Cobb is going to come back. So I was like, oh, what is that going on? I, I don't know. That just stuck out in my head. So I thought that was kind of just, you know, just a little trivial thing to mention. Oh, and I forgot also, in terms of names, uh, his name is Dormer, and it comes from the Latin word dormir, meaning to sleep. So that's a little maybe on the nose if you know Latin. That's also, I guess, a cool name thing. But anyway, for all things Cinemakers, including the other episodes of this little run, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. We have an email address, cinemakers at cageclub.me. We are recording these a little bit ahead of time. We will be releasing them before we record all of them. So there's a chance if you send an email early on, we can read it on there, or we'll just, you know, read it afterwards and just smile. We also, brand new news decided today, starting August 1st, we're going to have a monthly newsletter to anybody who listens to our shows and wants to sign up and sort of, like, a, a monthly digest of the best of the best of what the network had to offer. I'm working through the details and logistics now, but go to cageclub.me, there'll be links to sign up for that, figure out how to do that, maybe cageclub.me slash newsletter. I gotta figure out how to actually get a form on there, but it'll be there by the time this episode goes up, so go there, if you want a curated look at the month that was for the Cage Club Podcast Network, go to cageclub.me slash newsletter, maybe. Or if that doesn't work, just poke around the site and figure it out. Or email cinemakers at cageclub.me and just say, hey, I can't figure it out, and I'll help you, hopefully, maybe. But yeah, that's it. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Chris Mattiello. And we'll see you next time on Cinemakers. Cinemakers.